0: Welcome to PBC Talks. If you would like to find out more information, please visit pbc.org.uk.
1: I think this morning... We need to keep honouring people, and um, our Alpha course has just come to an end. It's been a fantastic Alpha course. Tim and Emma and a, and a team have done an incredible job of, of serving every Thursday night, um, sharing the gospel with people, which is the most important thing that we do as a church. Um, so before before Tim and Emma, well, Emma comes in, interviews and talks about the next course, can we just give them a massive clap for what they do and, and honour them? You're amazing. Um, Emma, you're going to tell us about the Alpha Course, and John, you're going to come and speak as well, aren't you? So, do you want to come forward? Let's hear what's going on in September.
0: Brilliant. We have got an amazing team. So, massive thanks to, uh, to the whole team. It's Tim, my gorgeous husband. He's gorgeous, isn't he? Uh, we have Di, we have Alison, and we had a new member to the team, Wayne. Wayne, stand up. Just in case you don't know Wayne, <laughs> Wayne has been phenomenal and he's not going anywhere, he hasn't got a choice he's going to be on the team moving forward as well we've had a brilliant Alpha course it's been slightly smaller than usual but we've had a brilliant journey and a lot of uh, beautiful guests responded very early in the course uh, so it's kind of turned into a bit of a discipleship loads of them have been coming to church regularly so it's beautiful to get them into the family as well, so we thought we'd go for another one, we always have one in autumn you can see this on the screen the dates we're going to start on the 19th of September and we want you guys to be in invite in your friends, okay? We we can turn up. If no one else turns up, nothing's going to happen. So we want you to be thinking between now and September, who is it that you could invite uh, who could learn and grow and maybe respond to this amazing gospel? Uh, enough from me. Um, we have the beautiful John. Can we give John a big round of applause? And... Uh, I I, kind of throw people in at the deep end, don't I, John? And uh, I asked him if he wanted to come up and share and be interviewed. I I think your initial response probably inside was no, but he's such a generous, loving guy. He did say yes, so it's lovely to have you here. So John was on our last course, so I just want to ask him a few questions, uh, which we had prepared earlier. So John, why is it that you came on the course in the first place?
2: Thanks, Emma. Uh, yes, you did conjole me up here. <laughs> um, it's been a long journey for, for myself and my family, and there's, there's been a few key points along that journey. Um, uh, I've been searching. We've been, I've been personally in quite a dark place um, for quite a long time. Um, doesn't always show on the outside, but on the inside, it was definitely true. I've um, been supported by a very, very loving family. Um, and there's a few key points happened over, over the certainly over the last 10 years. I um, had a friend say to me, you need to find God, who um, I had lunch with him on Friday and told him I'd found God, and he was over the moon. Um, <laughs> at, at the time, though, um, it actually nearly lost my friendship with him, because I wasn't in the right place to find that. And um, five and a half years ago, I was probably in the darkest hole um, I've ever been in my life. And um, thank you, Rob. And then... Um, A few things started to happen. I've been on a journey. I've been searching um, to try and get out of that hole and fighting really hard. And then um, um, 18 months ago, my daughter became a Christian. And some people might know Ellie um, in the church. And um, again, Ellie had been part of that tough journey as well. And um, she said one thing that just resonated with me. She said, Dad, I don't have to fix everybody's problems anymore. God's got it yeah, and um, it just sunk um, deep into my heart, and I thought about it long, long and hard, and um, came to church last Christmas, and I've not stopped coming since, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the singing may not be great, so apologies to those who sit in front of me, um, but I do try and sing my heart out, and then um, I came on Alpha, and obviously I um, um, met a, a few wonderful people and the final sort of trigger there, there was, I was sat next to this wonderful guy um, Cole Wayne who you just introduced and um, it touched on me how people can have very similar things in life that you think you're going through on your own sometimes and actually you're not and, um, and that was it really so, so I came on Alpha because of that reason and, and, and the rest of the journey looking forward is um, coming out of a dark hole into a, a very light and bright place which is where I'm heading which I'm really excited about yeah.
0: Excellent. So if we, he's brilliant, isn't he? It's been such a, I've got to keep saying it's such a privilege to be part of our phone. If you want to get involved, do chat to me. But um, if you could pick one thing out of the course, the actual course, coming every Thursday, watching those videos, hanging out with people, what's the one thing, the best thing uh, that you would say if you could, the main thing?
2: There is one little thing I am going to say. I met some wonderful people on that course. Um, so thank you. And some of the are in church today as well through Alpha. Um, uh, but the one thing I think that's really poignant to me is it um, allowed me to forgive um, and let myself be forgiven. And... Um, um, and it's basically um, it was very hard, as those who were on the course with me knew, so um, it allowed me to, to, to look forward, um, which I didn't think was possible um, some time ago, so, th- so yeah, so thank you. Brilliant.
0: And uh, do you think it's changed you in any way? What's, what's changed? I know it has, I'm just like, it's a leading question, but what's changed for you particularly after going through that course? Yeah,
2: <laughs> so um, a lot's changed actually, there's loads of things that are just tricking along happening that I'd normally worry about, I'm not, I'm just quite chill with that, I, I, for those who don't know I do prayer every day, I'm reading the Bible, it's a tough book to read <laughs> as a, as a, as a start for those who've been through, and um, the one thing I'd say probably changed is um, the anger is going out of my life, um, and I asked Mel that question as well, um, and it is that's eaten me alive, that anger, um, it's not anymore. Things that would normally send me over the edge at work and in my personal life, I'm just it's okay. It's you know let it go. Um, i look in a different way at that. So yeah, that that of all would be my main thing. So,
0: Gospel works, doesn't it? Hey, yeah, give me my, you're gonna get a round of applause every time. Um, so if there's if there's someone out here thinking actually this is the first time I'm in church, I've never done the Alpha course, um, or someone's like thinking I might invite my friend. Uh, how would you encourage someone, would you encourage someone to do the course and how would you do it?
2: Yeah, I definitely would. Uh, first thing that dawned on me was how ignorant I was of, um, of of religion. But more importantly, as a very close friend of mine said, um, religion getting in the way of faith. Um, thank you, Chris. And, um, and it, yeah. and um, So yeah, definitely, because A, I was ignorant. Uh, I thought I knew something and I didn't. So I did come on for that reason alone. Um, and then secondly was to, to see whether I could um, find a faith and um, yeah, uh, it, 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 it's just to let yourself go really and to allow that to happen and understand that even though we may think we're in control of something, we're not and quite clearly there is something far larger and greater than what we think we are as individuals happening So God's work, so thank you
0: yeah. Isn't he adorable? Give him a big round of applause, thank you John You can relax now <laughs> You can relax and uh, it was so beautiful. Uh, we took them all out to Pizza Express. We always do that. We like a bit of pizza. And it was lovely because John bought his whole family there. And it was just lovely to have his wife, Mel. Mel's here today and Eleanor's here today. It's just lovely just to celebrate something that God's done uh, in their lives as a family. So uh, it is a privilege to be part of it. We're starting again on 19th September. Flyers will come out soon. It'll be in the next newsletter. Any questions, come and find me. Thank you.
1: So this morning we have got uh, Mark Elder, he's going to preach. Um, for those who don't know who Mark is, Mark uh, was a minister here many years ago. What's amazing is that, Mark, your, your influence on this church still continues today. Even though you, you, are, you, you don't serve on staff here anymore, you see it in groups and people, and you're still talked about as an influential figure in this church. So it's so exciting to have you preach this morning. So can we please welcome Mark up
3: this morning? It is so, so lovely to be here. Thank you.
1: Let's
3: turn to our Bibles, shall we? And uh, I'm going to read from James chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to look at the passage between verses 14 to 26, entitled in this Bible, Faith Without Works is Dead. And this is what the Bible says, What good is it, my brothers... Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. I want to uh, introduce you to two people on the left hand side we have uh, Becky she's a single mum she's got two young children Becky's not a believer she's not against God but she would by her own profession say that she's not a Christian the last time she was in church was for a family funeral Everybody loves Becky because she's the kindest and most thoughtful person who lives on her street. She's gone through a difficult time and she understands when other people go through difficult times and when they do, Becky's there with a listening ear and a meal for the family. Baking cakes to give away is just one of her specialities. Need a volunteer to collect Christian aid envelopes? Becky's the woman for the job. And to cap it all... As well as having young children and always helping people out, she started a local campaign to keep the park tidy after all these government cutbacks. She's quite open and liberal in her views, and she would definitely not identify as a Christian. That's Becky. We also, to your right, have Gerald He's married to Helen. He's been a Christian for 20 years. And he's been a member of his church for the last 15. He's never really committed that much to serving in his church. But he does have the gift of prophecy. Worship is his thing. And reading Christian books. And attending Christian conferences in the summer. New wine is his favorite. He loves listening to Matt Redman in his car. I like Stint and Matt Redman in my car too. (laughs) He's got very strong moral views, particularly on gay marriage. He's got a job in IT, but his work colleagues view him as a little bit of a loner and slightly, in the nicest possible way, a bit odd. So we have Becky and we have Gerald. Which of these individuals pleases God most? Which of them is saved? And if one or the other is saved, why are they saved? The book of James, which I believe you've been looking at for the last week or so, is a controversial book. At least it's been a controversial book through the whole of church history. And all the controversy in the book of James, so if you're up for a little bit of controversy this morning, please listen carefully. All the controversy in the book of James comes to a head in this passage. And the debate surrounds how human beings can be saved. Is it our faith? Is it good works is it a combination of the two what is it that puts us right with God these are absolutely fundamental questions of our faith which are at stake here this is a reflection on the subject of salvation for the theologians amongst us the subject is called soteriology you all knew that didn't you Because I realize I'm preaching to a very savvy congregation (laughs) here in Poynton. Is it our faith or our deeds that cause us to be saved? Is James promoting a gospel at odds with, for instance, Paul? Or to bring it up to date, which of our volunteers please God most or might be saved? Becky or Gerald? And why? So we're going to do some thinking and digging and exploring this morning in the greatest unexplored territory in the universe. That is the gap between our ears. <laughs> I actually, think thinking is greatly underrated in the church. I want to be a I want to be a thinker. Do you? Yeah. I, I've never. Th- I've never st- never been struck by this notion that when you become a Christian, somehow you've got to park your brain. No, it's good to do some thinking and this is a passage to think about this morning. So have your Bibles ready for a little bit of Bible study and whatever stuff might distract you from engaging with this right now is a good time just to park it and engage for the next half an hour because it is really an important subject. And Will, thank you so much for giving me such a simple passage this morning. Let me just say a prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to grapple with your word this morning. Help me to speak clearly and to navigate wisely and to allow these wonderful scriptures to speak for themselves. Bring my words alive in the power of the Holy Spirit and help us to listen well, to be attentive to you and to the voice of your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to do a little bit of church history for starters. It will be hopelessly simplistic, but I hope that um, it's it's helpful for us as we think about this faith and works thing. On the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, the church was born. The Holy Spirit was poured out onto stacks of new believers and the fun began, didn't it? That was the beginning of this God-ordained thing, which we call the church, the ecclesia, the fellowship of Christ followers. Prior to then, even during the time of Jesus, belief in God was played out in a person's life in three major ways. There we go. If you're making notes, write these things down. Three major ways, in the Old Testament and in the time of Jesus. Firstly, if you believed in God, religious ritual was important. The synagogue was important. The scriptures, not the scriptures that we have, the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were hugely significant. Living a righteous life was important, so external deeds mattered. They were very important. And circumcision if you were a bloke, mattered, because that was a physical outward sign of God's love for his people expressed through the covenant. So if you believed in God, what you did was, if you were a man, you did all three, and if you're a woman, you did two out of the three. Religious ritual, righteous living, circumcision. Jesus observed all these three things, ritual, righteousness, circumcision, as did all orthodox Jews. And then Jesus comes along and he teaches what he taught. And then at the end of his life, we know the story, he dies and he's buried and he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. All hugely important events, not least the last one, by the way. It's another greatly underrated doctrine, the doctrine of the ascension. Cross, burial, resurrection, ascension, all very important moments. And then what's left of Uh, these with these Jesus followers they get filled and baptized in God's power at Pentecost and suddenly they realize that what they have is intended for the whole world Jew and Gentile alike Pentecost is a game changer because it marks the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh on all flesh Jew and Gentile alike you with me so far good good You see how something fairly localised suddenly becomes worldwide. That's what happened after the day of Pentecost. So starting with the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10, increasingly more and more Gentiles are encountering God. In Acts 15, now stay with me here because this is important, particularly when it comes to James and Paul, there's a fairly heated debate, council, between the apostles and leaders of this new Christian movement. And the debate is about this subject. How Jewish do non-Jews who have become believers, how Jewish do they need to become in order to be saved? You get the question. In other words, which of these three previous signs of ritual righteousness and circumcision still stand? That's the question. And uh, this conference in uh, Acts 15 was hosted by the first church in Jerusalem whose lead elder and presider of the council was none other than James the Epistle, who was the half-brother of Jesus. We knew that, didn't we? So, so James is presiding at the council about how Jewish new believers need to become in order to be acceptable to God. And the keynote speaker, speakers were Simon Peter, on the one hand, who favoured a faith plus option, and the Apostle Paul, on the other hand, who was a faith alone option. He was accompanied by Barnabas, who no doubt cheered him on from the sidelines. So don't forget that James and Paul knew one another, may have even been friends with one another. So that's important. Paul wins the day by ensuring that Gentiles can be saved, not by circumcision, not by good deeds, not by religious ritual, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That is sufficient. Now this church is built on that evangelical heritage and I realize I'm using some words here which the majority of you will be familiar with and I'll try and explain as I go and just in case you don't understand. This church is an evangelical church. It certainly was or became an evangelical church about 50 years ago, about the time when man landed on the moon. A man called David Pringle walked in that door Many of you will know the story and ever since this church has had an evangelical heritage. It has had a faith alone heritage all the way through, all the way through, all the ministers. I was thinking about them all only this morning in that recent history. So Paul argues, what does Paul argue? Let's just think about Paul's argument for faith alone. He argues for faithfulness. Now, let's have a look at some some Bible scriptures. If you've got your Bible handy, let me just uh, point us in the direction of uh, Romans 3.27, for instance. This is a whole chapter where Paul is building an argument that God's imputed righteousness, the righteousness that God gives to us in order for us to be justified, just as if I'd never sinned, can only be accessed by faith alone verse 28 says we maintain that a person is justified made right before God by faith apart from observing the law not that Paul says the law is over and done with in verse 31 he says do we then nullify the law by this faith not at all rather we uphold the law so Paul is saying that the law still has its place, but we are not made right before God by observing the law, only by faith. Galatians 2.16 says something similar, says know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ Christ. And not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. You can't be much clearer than that, can you? By observing the law, no one will be justified. That's a massive issue in our nation. Because many people out there think that being a good person is sufficient to get them to heaven. Do people say that to you? I'm as good as the people who go to your church. They're probably right on the money. They probably are. Might even be better. But that's not the point is it so let's be absolutely clear paul teaches that the only way to be made right with god to be saved is through faith in christ ephesians 2 8 which is a very popular and well-known text in the new testament sums it up and it says this for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast so we're following Paul's argument here we're all on the same page I hope God's grace meeting with our faith which is a work of the spirit is the one and only way a person of any background any age any ethnicity any sexuality any class can be saved are you with me so far do you agree with me Well, let's see how we can accommodate James then, because that's our challenge. So far, so good. So here's the thing. Back to James. Does the teaching of James, which I read earlier, differ from Paul? Does it contradict Paul? And does it open the door for salvation by good, good works? On first reading, there does look to be contradiction. James 2.14, for instance, says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? He seems to be describing our friend Becky here, doesn't he? James' language gets stronger, verse 18. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Verse 20, you foolish man. How to win friends and influence people, this. (laughs) You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Useless. Verse 26, faith without deeds is dead. Dead. So we've got these words here. Useless, dead, kaput, done for, pointless. It's a bit like the dead parrot sketch, isn't it, in Monty Python? This parrot is no more, Paul seems to be saying. Faith without deeds is dead. Now fast forward a few hundred years to the Reformation. You're sat there thinking, what on earth is he talking about? The Reformation was a moment in church history which um, meant a huge shift in the way people thought about God. The man who was mainly responsible for it in a place called Wittenberg in Germany, he nailed a shopping list to the door of the cathedral there, was a man called Martin Luther. You all knew this, didn't you? And Martin, I'm, I'm going to absolutely obliterate Martin Luther here, but I'll just put it in a nutshell. Martin Luther stood against what was predominantly teaching from the Roman Catholic Church at the time, by saying that, no, you are not made right with God by doing good works or by paying lots of money to Rome. You are made right with God by faith alone. Sola fide. Sola fide. Martin Luther, he followed in the footsteps. He wasn't the first to think this, by the way. If you think you've got an original idea, somebody somewhere in church history will have had it before you. Uh, He followed in the footsteps of a man called St. Augustine, who came before him, and both Augustine and Martin Luther didn't like James at all. Martin Luther called James an epistle of straw, and as the New Testament tutor at Wittenberg Seminary, he forbade his students from studying the book of James. And he did that because... Martin Luther gave his life to the idea that justification being made right with God is by grace through faith. And he had no truck with anything that could remotely contest that idea. For him, salvation was all about God's action, even the faith bit, actually. I'll mention one or two other names that you may be familiar with. Um, John Calvin and the Reformers followed Luther in this the debate is about the nature of salvation. Who does the saving bit? We heard a story this morning. Who did the saving bit? What, 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 was it John? So is, is there any bit of John that's responsible for that journey of justification? Or is it all God? Is the faith that he has now even a gift from God? The question, I'll let you discuss that one over lunch. That's a big question. Move on to um, Whitfield and Wesley. They, they had a huge debate about that as well. I've just been down to Bristol and enjoyed a couple of days as part of my sabbatical looking at the spirituality of John Wesley. And they had great debates about this. Who does the saving? And how much of the, our human nature is involved in that? Fast forward to the church scene in the UK in the 1960s. Some of you will remember this where you had churches who, some were into social activism and justice. We called them the liberals. We peered over the fence at them and called them the liberals. They were in the James camp, if you like. Their thing was, there was even a name for it. We called it the social gospel. And then there were the evangelicals. We were sound our doctrine was sound personal piety high view of scripture David Pringle who I just mentioned who was the the father of the modern point and baptist church was a staunch evangelical a staunch evangelical he you know David Pringle Um, Some of you will know him far better than I, but he was at Lausanne in 1974. I'm talking about a huge conference that was massively instrumental in the temperature and the climate, spiritual climate changing in this nation um, around the area of evangelicals recovering the social conscience. I, I mean, the more you dig into this, the more significant him and the story of this church actually is. You know, um, in my travels around the nation, sometimes people will say to me, Oh, you, you, you were a minister at Poynton, weren't you? Oh, we know about Poynton. You see, you didn't know that, did you? And what they know is that this church had a massive turnaround in the late 60s and became very much a model for the church growth movement. Many of you who've been around for a while may remember some of that. But on the one hand we had Paul, and on the other we had James, we had the liberals on one side, we had the evangelicals on the other, and it was a case of either or, never the twain shall meet. But what if, here's the thing that I want to get to after that very long sort of introduction, here's the thing I want to get to, what if it's not either or, it's both and? What if both Paul and James, what if faith and works are hugely significant and actually can complement one another? Now, this is where we've got to do some work. If I was being a little bit clever now, I could refer you to an essay that I wrote when I was actually a minister in this church as part of my master's degree entitled The Recovery of the Evangelical Social Conscience. I was rather proud of it. Actually, I got a good mark for it. Uh, It was one of my better efforts. And in that piece of work, I I researched two things. One was, I went to have an interviewer one by one with a man called John Stock he's another father of the evangelical faith he was hugely influential in bringing faith and deeds together he was the theological pioneer out of which sprung organizations like tier fund for instance and and today we're you know it's street pastors and cap and uh, it's food banks that would have never happened without people like John Stott. So I went to see him, and I talked to him, and uh, it was one of the the great moments for me, meeting the great John Stott. You know, like, if you love tennis, for you, you'd be overwhelmed by meeting Roger Federer. Or if you you know anything about football, you'd be overwhelmed by meeting Pep Guardiola. I mean, uh, I am, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, glad to see that discernment's not gone all the way around the church. Well, for me, meeting John Stott was like, I mean, that's like meeting Billy Graham, really. So I offer you the five-minute version of my essay here, which I think might help us to arrive at a conclusion before we share bread and wine together. It is true to say that Paul's main emphasis is on grace and faith. And James' emphasis, remember the new one another, remember the Council of Jerusalem. And it's fair to say that James' major emphasis is on actions and deeds. True. But does that put them at variance with each other? I want to say in answer to that question, a big fat no. No, it does not. Here's why. I've got three reasons first thing I want to say is this James emphasis on deeds is not exclusive to James he wasn't the only one who said it in the New Testament for instance John the Baptist in um, Matthew 3 verse 8 tells us that people should particularly baptismal candidates because he baptized lots of people that they should produce fruit in keeping with their repentance it's not just about repentance It's about fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, your external deeds and character show the validity of your repentance. He wouldn't baptize people, actually, without both repentance and the fruits of their repentance. If you turn to Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus said, We should let our lives shine like lights before other people, so that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven, Paul himself gives countless examples of how good deeds authenticate faith. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says this, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body. Luther and Calvin didn't much like it. It has to be said that particular text. So get this. Both Paul and I, believe James, teach that Christians will be rewarded for good works based on our character and our lifestyle and our deeds. Luke 6 verse 35 says this, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting a return, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. So let's be clear, Paul is not anti-deeds. He's not anti-work. Here's one of my favorite scriptures, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Paul writes, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The Greek word erga, E-R-G-A, is the same word there that James uses. And uh, it is the word from which we get ergonomics. Ergonomics. Um, the Germans are good, I I drive a German car and I drove from Worcester to Poynton without even my feet on the pedals the only thing I did with my left hand other than click things on my um, steering wheel and steer the car was to move my hand to the left to drink my Costa coffee that's ergonomics that's ergonomics that's effective work done Back in the day when I started driving at first, I mean, you, you know, you, you were all over the place, weren't you? Um, now, uh, I've got this wonderful thing on my car called adaptive cruise control, which is a bit scary to start with, actually, and it makes the car go faster and slower. You don't put your feet on the pedals, and you can drive miles and miles and miles. A couple of years ago, we went to the whole. I went to Cornwall, and all I did was steer the car. That's called ergonomics. I don't know why I went off on that tangent, but it seemed enjoyable at the time. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is that point one here is that James' emphasis on deeds is not exclusive to him. And the second thing that my studies back then taught me was this. They led me to the view that James doesn't condemn Paul, but a perversion of Paul. Listen carefully. The perversion of Paul was to limit faith believe to a sort of intellectual profession, to professed faith rather than practiced faith, verbalized faith without practiced faith, orthodoxy without orthopraxis, and both matter. For instance, I did maths at school. I got my O-level a year early, get in. Do you remember O-levels? They were rock hard, weren't they, O-levels? Half the congregation is thinking, yeah, yeah, right. O-levels. Exams for the oldies. (laughs) Maths. We did trigonometry. I got by. I discovered a person called Mr. Pythagoras. Sines and cosines and all that. And I knew that the formula to work out the area of a circle was pi r squared. Is that right, mathematicians? And the circumference of a circle is 2 pi r. It is true, I know it, but it has had absolutely no bearing on my life ever since I was sat in that classroom at school. (laughs) On the other hand, I also discovered that 1 plus 1 equals 2. This truth has greatly impacted my life, hugely impacted it. When I was a child, I used to go to the uh, news agent on a Thursday morning and buy both Dandy and Bino. Yeah. They were one pence each. They went from 2D to 1P. Do you remember that? When we went from D's to P's. Sorry about this. I'll, I'll translate <laughs> later. 1P each. And I used to give the news agent 2P. Result, you see. Did the job. It's helpful having that knowledge. I put it into practice. When Zoe and I got married, we had our first child. And I knew that when Zoe got pregnant again, very soon we'd have two. (laughs) However, having children and mathematical truth are not the same. Because when it comes to children, one plus one equals about three, doesn't it? Is that right? Try four. <laughs> Try four, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well done, Chris. <laughs> well, you're in good form this morning, aren't you? Yeah. One plus one equals two. It's a bit of a naff illustration, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to convey the fact that we can know something. But when we earth it, it takes on a different dimension. Intellectual assent without appropriation is not what the Bible teaches. So James opposes a brand of Christianity that does not affect the whole personality and actions of a believer. So he doesn't reject Paul. He rejects a distortion of Paul. Now, stay with me, because I'm nearly there. You've been very patient, and I hope this has been helpful. My my reflections led me to the third thing that I think is important, that the difference between James and Paul is that they begin at different times in a Christian life. If you can hear a rumbling noise in the background, it's probably Luther at this point turning in his grave. (laughs) Paul begins at the very beginning... It's first steps stuff. It is by faith that we're saved. So Paul insists that the only way to start out on the road with God and be put right with God is by faith. That's true. But James is saying that unless works flow out of that faith, it's not real. Whenever I get stuck, I like to turn to William Barclay. And um, here's a little bit of William Barclay. The difference between James and Paul is a difference of the starting point. Paul starts with the great basic fact of the forgiveness of God, which no one can earn or win or deserve. That's true, isn't it? James starts with a professing Christian and insists that unless a person proves his Christianity by his deeds, he's not a Christian at all. We are not saved by deeds, we're saved for deeds. These are the twin truths of the Christian life. And Paul's whole emphasis is on the first truth, and James' whole emphasis is on the second truth. In point of fact, James and Paul do not contradict each other, they complement each other. And the message of both is essential to the Christian faith in its fullest form. Well put. I could have read that at the beginning and we could have got into communion, couldn't we? <laughs> Don't academics who do that irritate you? It's just annoying. So at last we come into land. James and Paul belong together. They belong together. And when I did my sweating away 18 years ago when I wrote that essay, I concluded that whilst James and Paul have got different things to say, they live together. We are not saved by deeds, we are saved for deeds. Which brings us back to our couple, Becky and Gerald. Which of them is saved? Which of them pleases God most? If you want to know what I think, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Let's just be quiet in the presence of God for a few moments. Pray, Lord God, that the truth from your scripture and my words will enlarge our minds and touch our hearts. We thank you for the wonder and the joy of being saved. But I pray, Lord, that you'll save us from a faith which uh, doesn't result in good works, actions, deeds. Actions speak louder than words. Pray, Lord, that this community won't just hear about the truth, but see the truth by the way this family here live. For we ask it in Jesus' name.
0: For listening to this week's talk. Join us next week for another inspirational message.